You are listening to Bitcoin, Blockchain and the Technologies of Our Future with Naomi Brockwell. Hi, everyone. We are live and I'm really, really excited to have with me on the show today, Robert Murphy. Uh, Welcome, everyone. And uh, we're going to be talking about the, the housing crash. So thanks so much for chatting with me, Robert. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. And uh, I mean, it's it's a hot topic, right? A lot of people are always wondering what's going to happen. They make a lot of their fam- their life decisions based around what's going to happen in the markets. And realistically, we actually look at what's been going on. It is pretty scary, uh, the policies that, that have been carried out and what potentially could be coming around the corner. So I kind of want to start at the beginning for people. Uh, You have a background in Austrian economics. Uh, You are, let me uh, pull up here. Uh, You are a research assistant professor with the Free Market Institute at Texas Tech. And if anyone hasn't listened to Bob Murphy's podcasts, you absolutely need to. So he's a co-host of the Contra Krugman podcast. Every week they refute the ridiculous things that Paul Krugman says. Uh, So make sure you check that out. Um, But you have such a strong background in economic theory and you've been looking closely at markets and uh and i mean you say that there's a crash coming around the corner right yeah so i'm a a background in in austrian economics as you say and that's uh i'm sure a lot of your listeners know that term but just to to not leave yeah i'd love to do uh do like an overview start at the beginning Um, okay austrian economics in particular what that means and uh how that influences your perspective of, of uh what's going on in the economy yeah. So yeah. So we are. It is true that yeah. Using Austrian theory, um, I think I saw the 08 crash coming before a lot of other economists did. Not that I've gotten everything right since then, but certainly um, Austrian theory helped on that one. And and yes, if you, as we expl- as I explain why, why what the Austrian perspective says about where the housing bubble and crash came from, the reason that it's not just a historical curiosity, but it would show, okay, so then we're actually right now also in the midst of a giant asset bubble, and I do think a crash is coming. It's, um, I mean, before everyone says that it was the housing market that was completely inflated, a lot of people blame free market economics for that. But you're someone who disagrees with that. You, you say that it's a lot of government policy, and they did a lot of the inflating, and it was actually their policy that, that really created this bubble. So let's talk a little bit about, like, centrally planned economies, just to give people a, a basic overview of where you're coming from. And I've got some slides here as well that I will uh, put up so that people can, can take a look at those. Um, so let's start with the idea of like what causes business cycles. Sure. So again, I'm what I'm explaining here is going to be the uh, the viewpoint of it was developed by Ludwig von Mises and then Friedrich Hayek. So that would be the the next slide there. And, and what she's drawing on is, is Naomi was on the the Contra cruise with me, a cruise that we did. Tom Woods and I host based on our podcast Contra Krugman, and 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 that's what we're we're showing here is a abbreviated version of that presentation I gave. So yeah, it's um, Mises is a primary leader in the Austrian school. His disciple Friedrich Hayek won the Nobel prize in 74, largely for his work on business cycle theory. And so the Austrian view is first you need to understand, um, you know, what, what role do interest, uh, interest rates serve. And then as you go to the next slide, you'll see this. Yep. Um, and where Hayek was coming from is he was saying that, in order to understand the business cycle, first you got to just understand in general how do things ever go right, okay? And and that's um, and so I think it's the next slide actually from one the one you're looking at. Let's have a look here: sustainable versus unsustainable right, growth. Right. 
And so what Hayek was getting at is that um, the analogy I use might be a silly one is that when I was younger, I didn't really understand how poison worked. And in fact, it just made no sense to me because I said, look at you know, a little drop of some, some liquid, you put it on your tongue and all of a sudden you just die. That seemed implausible to me. You know, I was a little kid. And fortunately, you know, I didn't test the theory out or anything. I still was enough of a, of a chicken to, to not try it. But what, and then as you get older, now my understanding, you know, is that, of course, you understand more how the human body works and all the different systems that are going on behind the scenes without you even being consciously aware of it. Each of these things, you know, your respiratory system, circulatory, all these other things have to be operating within tolerable margins, any one of which gets knocked out and you're dead. And so that's how poison works. You know, it interferes with those cr critical systems. So the miracle is not, you know, the, the, the mystery is not how does poison kill you? It's the miracle of how do you stay alive? And like, that's a really complex thing. And we kind of just largely take it for granted unless something goes wrong. So Hayek had the same um, approach when it comes to the economy. He was saying, instead of like looking at the, 19, you know, the 1930s, the Great Depression, or in our time, instead of looking at the housing crisis or the financial crisis in 2008, and just saying, oh, what, you know, what went wrong here? What, do we, what does the government need to tinker with to fix this? First, let's step back and just understand how does growth in general work when it's sustainable? And here the Austrians think that interest rates serve a really important purpose. And so in particular, interest rates are prices and they help coordinate activities over time. So real fast, just intuitively, the idea is like, let's say everybody in society starts saving more, right? So out of current output, more is being devoted to um, long-term investments, things like that. How would the economy know how to do that? How would entrepreneurs know that, hey, the consumers don't want us to make so many ice cream cones and so many color TVs. The consumers actually would rather that we make factories or that we like have offshore oil platforms or we build more universities, you know, things that don't pay off in the near term, but they pay off down the road. The, the interest rate is a primary signal in the market economy to, to sort of communicate that information. So if people save more, then like traditionally, you know, banks would have more savings that would push down interest rates. And then it would be easier for people to take out loans for longer term projects. Or if you're, if you're evaluating a particular project, if you plug in a lower interest rate into the numbers, like into the accounting, that project that has upfront costs but has revenues over time, you know, those revenues over time at a lower interest rate are worth more. And so the project might appear profitable. So the idea is in a regular healthy economy, if people save more, they refrain from current consumption that frees up real resources to get invested in long-term projects. So it's like society is consuming less now so that down the road it can consume more. And that trade-off, that intertemporal exchange is governed by or coordinated through interest rates, you know, falling and giving the right signal to everybody. So then the Austrians say, okay, what happens if interest rates fall, not because people are saving more, but because let's say the central bank just decides to create a bunch of credit artificially and flood the markets with it, and that pushes interest rates artificially low. Well, because it's a decentralized system, entrepreneurs are still getting that signal like, oh, capital's cheaper to borrow now, so go ahead and start long projects even though there's not the real saving to back it up. So in the Austrian view, that leads to an unsustainable boom for a few years at least. Those artificially low interest rates and artificially abundant credit make people feel rich, but it's all based on quicksand. And so ultimately, it's going to come crashing down. So that's the, um, the Austrian theory of the business cycle in the abstract.
And then I think if you and, go yeah, ahead. And so they are, that's actually, I mean, you've got a slide here, economists, economists using this framework predicted the housing crash years in advance. So if you actually look at charts of interest rates, they can be incredible signaling devices for telling you like what's to come. How's the economy gonna gonna react to that? And it's um it's kind of crazy that that we have so much interference in this incredibly complex system, as you said, um, because it just creates all of these unintended consequences. And that's what we saw before in the housing crash. So let's talk about the the previous housing crash and how interest rates sort of played into that. Sure. Yeah. So again, that was just the the generic sort of abstract view, and then yeah, I was applying it now in this section of the presentation to the the housing boom and bust. So yeah, the the next slide there, it's got a quote from uh, Mark Thornton, who was an Austrian economist, um, and he eerily predicted exactly what was coming, uh, in, as far as the um, the crash. So you know, your your readers can can read that if they want to, uh, your viewers. But Thornton, as of you know, in two thousand four, I believe it was that he. You know, accurately said that the housing's overpriced. The the government sponsored enterprises, things like Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, are going to get in over their heads. They're going to need a taxpayer bailout, and so he was you know predicting things there. I don't have it in the presentation, but I um, had an article. If people want to look it up when they get a, a chance, um, called uh, "The Worst Recession in Twenty Five Years," and I had a question mark. It's a you know if you Google Robert Murphy and that thing, it'll pop up. So that ran in October of two thousand seven. So 11 months before the crisis really hit, where I was using this framework. And so what I had done is I just looked at interest rates um, and saw that they were uh, the lowest that had been the case since the late 1970s. So using the Austrian framework at that time in the you know 2006, 2007, I was all of a sudden very alarmed saying, whoa, interest rates have been artificially low. So there were some people at that point warning about, hey, housing is in a bubble and other people were poo-pooing them. And so that's, you know, when I was looking at those figures, that's when I became alarmed as well. I said, yes, because using this Austrian framework, it looks like the Fed set us up for a big crash. So if you move and, up, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, and uh, if you look at the charts, they sort of, you can show that. And, and let me just uh, yeah. move through here. So applying the framework of the bubbles past and today, and let me just make sure that the people at home can see that. Um, so... Uh, yeah, it's just incredible. Once you understand the signaling device, it is really, really alarming. I remember when I um, first watched your presentation, I mean, this is something that I'm, I'm very familiar with in the past, but you really brought it home just, you know, how directly related these things are. So go ahead and, and look at this. We've got a chart here. It's after the dot-com crash, uh, Greenspan cut rate, cuts rates. Right. So that, yeah, that chart's showing um, the particular interest rate I showed was the federal funds rate. And that's when the press reports on, oh, the Fed did such and such with interest rates. That's typically the one they, they mean. It's a very short term overnight rate. But you can see it was it was six and a half percent going into uh, 2001. And then there was the, you know, the dot com crash in the 2000 and then the 2001 uh, terrorist attacks, World Trade Center and so forth. And, and so the, at that point, the U.S. should have gone into a bad recession. And so Greenspan was the head of the Fed. What did the Fed do at that time? It started flooding the market with liquidity and short-term rates dropped from 6.5% down to 1% by June of 03, and he held them there for a year. And so that, you know, again, just showing that the Fed inflated in response to the collapse of the dot-com bubble, and that was like the standard Keynesian playbook. That's what you're supposed to do if you're you know, a Keynesian central banker when the economy is going into recession. You have easy monetary policy. You, you slash interest rates. But in the Austrian framework, 
you're not doing anybody any favors. You're just prop. You're just setting us up for another crash. Absolutely, because that feeds directly into the into the cycle. And if we move along in the slides, uh, you could see exactly what happened. So I've right. So the, yeah. So there, I pulled back, and you can see. So now I've got the interest rates. I think those are the, that's the blue line, right? And then the the red line is the uh, the house price index. So the blue line, uh, federal funds target rate, and uh, red line is the S and P. Uh, case Chile U.S. National Home Price Index. Right. So, so what that's showing you is as the blue, you know, the blue line comes down after the dot com crash, and then you see that red line start to accelerate upward, and so that's the period when the housing bubble really took off. You know, in the early two thousands there, and and this, you know, so the, the numbers tell fit the story, but this was also the narrative at the time. If if people remember, uh, Greenspan was being hailed as the maestro. And people were, in particular, they were congratulating him and saying, oh, this is good that even as we had a, a decent recession in the early 2000s, housing is still continuing to rise. And so people were slapping Greenspan on the back saying, good job, you've propped up this asset market. You know, so for a while, it seemed like that was a good thing, right? Because in the Keynesian mindset, spending is what drives the economy. What you don't want to do is have a collapse in spending. And so if, if home prices are rising, then people feel wealthy and they continue to spend. So it's not just the direct spending on home building. It's also just in general, people who own houses that are going up in price experience a wealth effect. And so then they feel more comfortable spending elsewhere. So it seemed like that was a good way to offset the drag from the collapse of the dot-com bubble. And guys like Paul Krugman literally said, I think it was in 2002, that to offset the collapse in, in the dot-com stocks, Greenspan needs to create a housing bubble. So oh, can, my you know, gosh. So yeah. he's literally calling for the thing that destroyed so many lives, not just across America, but across the world. That's, I mean, it's, it's insane. But then, again, Krugman is known for saying some really dumb stuff, like Bitcoin is evil. And right. uh, the Internet is not going to have any more effect than uh, any greater effect than the fax machine. Right. So um, well, I, I should say Krugman had later tried to walk that back. But I think <laughs> and who, who goes and reads it in context will see he wasn't being ironic or sarcastic. He, he was being dead serious. You know, I think it's, it's clear, even though he has tried to walk it back. But, but yes, yeah, so to me, that just epitomizes the difference between the Austrian and the yeah. Keynesian school. Exactly. The Austrians were saying at that time, just let this play out. You know, there was excesses, male investments in the dot-com sector. Let, it, you know, let the market find a natural bottom, and then we'll build on a, on a firm foundation. Whereas the Keynesian playbook said, no, you got to slash interest rates. you got to pump up investment and you know, even spawning another asset bubble. So, so basically the, uh, building a, a house of cards that sets the scene for the next crash. And right. that's, I mean, rather than building on that sound foundation that you just mentioned and said, we're building on this awful foundation of quicksand. And I mean, so what's, what's to come? I'll move, move on to the next, uh, next slide here. Uh, Bernanke drops Greenspan playbook. Yeah. So there, what I'm showing, that's a long-term view of that same interest rate series. And so you can see, that what Greenspan did was just the uh, the little blip. That, I don't know if, you, if Naomi, you're able to. Well, if you're, I can't, you know, use a laser pointer here. But mm -hmm. if you can see after you know 1999, 2000, and then it comes down to one percent for a year, and then it goes back up. That was what Greenspan did, and we I've argued now with you guys that that helped spawn the housing bubble. So mm -hmm. then, if you see it went down, and it's like hugging the bottom of the graph. That's because under Bernanke after 2008 with the financial crisis, 
the Fed brought those interest rates down to basically 0%, right? So Greenspan had brought them down to 1%, held them there for a year before they started raising them again. The Bernanke Fed took them interest rates down to basically zero and held them there for seven years, okay? And so I'm just showing that if you buy the story that, and, and yeah, there's a whole host of things like the movie, The Big Short had a lot of the skullduggery that was going on in the financial sector. So I don't want, I'm not saying it was all Alan Greenspan's fault and everybody else was an angel. What we're saying though, is to understand why did these crashes occur when they did and why were they so big? The fact that the institution that literally can create money out of thin air is flooding the financial sector with new money and pushing down interest rates the Austrian view that has something to, to do with the story. So likewise Absolutely. here, um, you know, Bernanke did what Greenspan did times 10. And the next slide shows that even more so um, because the problem is once interest rates hit zero, you can't really push them down lower than that, or at least not much lower. So this chart now is showing the Fed's balance sheets. So that gives a different idea of the quantitative magnitude of what the Bernanke Fed did I mean, it's insane. You look at like it's basically very slowly increasing all the way up until it looks like the end of 2008. There's this giant spike, which I presume is the like top bailouts and quantitative easing. Um, but you can probably explain that a lot better than I can. And then since then, I mean, look at what's happened in 2013, 14. Like there's just been this huge increase. Um, so walk us through what we're looking at here. Sure. So, yeah, the early on, it's the um, you know, the the, the so what this is measuring is just the total assets owned by the Federal Reserve System. And so you can see that it was just gently increasing in the early 2000s. And then going into the fall of 2008, it stood at like $800, $850 billion. And then, yeah, it zooms right up. So that, that gray vertical strip there is just showing that's the, re, the official dates of the recession of, you know, of the, the 2007, 2008 recession. And so you can see just in a few months, it more than doubled. So and when you say balance sheet, what, what is on that balance sheet? So it was, originally it was mostly treasury securities. So like I see. So Fed it had nothing would, to do with the, the, the bailouts. It was, it was something no, else? It, it would. No, I'm saying oh. the, that original figure. And then what they started doing in the fall of 2008 onward was, yeah, they were buying a lot of mortgage-backed securities as well. So, so right. yes, it was the Fed's balance sheet. Yeah, the assets were eventually the various rounds of QE quantitative easing was a mixture of the Fed buying treasury debt and mortgage-backed securities. Right. Um, and and, sorry, and ultimately, as that goes, yeah, ultimately it gets, gets up to about $4.5 trillion. So again, it was like $800 a billion and change going into the financial crisis. And then just a few years later, the Fed was holding $4.5 trillion worth of assets. My God, that is, <laughs> that is insane. Uh, let's go on to the next slide here. Um, so the stock market had been following the Fed's actions until Trump. What, what do you mean by that? Okay, so the, the next slide will, will show you what I, yeah. So what I'm saying there is the, the correlation, if you just ask, these charts are coming from the St. Louis Fed, their online graphing uh, software, it's called FRED. Um, <laughs> so it'd be up, up through just before Trump got elected, if you charted the two series of, on the one hand, the Fed's assets or, you know, its balance sheet, and then the S&P 500 index, just the automatic graphing features, it, it fit hand in glove. So in other words, whenever the Fed was expanding its asset holdings, that's when the S&P 500 went up. And likewise, when the Fed 
stayed put, the S&P 500 was bouncing around. It was kind of flat. And then it also held after the so-called taper, after Janet Yellen came in, um, the Fed's asset purchases shrank over time until eventually they petered out to zero. And so that's, you know, when it was just the Fed was treading water. That was like, uh, I think, the fall of 2014 onward. The Fed was just rolling over its assets as they matured. So on net, it wasn't acquiring anymore. And the S&P 500, it was bouncing around, but it was basically flat for a long stretch. And so that's why at the time I was very comfortable telling people, you know, the fact that the stock market has rocketed upward after it troughed, you know, after the financial crisis is not because Barack Obama's a great president or because, you know, the policies he put in place are great. It's all driven by the Fed, that the Fed's creating boatloads of money and that's pushing up stock prices. So if that doesn't strike you as a very good foundation, you should be really wary. <laughs> and like I said, and I, in the chart, you know, the evidence seemed to, to show that beautifully. Like it, it really fit hand in glove. That pattern broke down when Trump won, even though the Fed at that point still wasn't buying more assets, the stock market started zooming upward. So I would say that, you know, the increase in the stock market since Trump won, I could say is based on, you know, fundamental factors and, you know, not whether you like Trump or not as a person or whatever, but just in terms of if you thought Hillary Clinton was going to have her administration, then Trump comes in and starts, you know, deregulating and cutting taxes and things. You could see how plausibly that would make corporate profitability go up and might boost stock prices. Right. So, so that's, that's what I meant by that previous text about the stock market was mirroring the Fed. Mm-hmm. And then when Trump came in, that pattern broke down somewhat. So I still think the stock market is way overvalued. Um, but it is true that some of the increase since Trump won, I could say that might be due to genuine changes in tax and, and regulations. Right. And then we go on. Uh, so real estate uh, reflated. So basically you've got this big uh, bubble happening here. It crashed and then it's just started to go up again because we've got all the same policies that we had before. Um, nothing really much has, has changed. So this huge housing crisis that destroyed so many money families, it just seems like we're just doing it all again. Like, is that what we should be reading from this chart here? Right. That I think a lot of people you know, had this vague idea that, oh, yeah, real estate was crazy. It was way overvalued in 2005, 2006. Then there was the big crash. and Now things are back to normal. And I want to say, well, no, actually, depending on which index you use, and that, that one I think is the Case Shiller National one, that actually it's real estate is higher now, at least in nominal terms, than it was at the height of the last bubble. So if you thought the last bubble was crazy and irrational and based on all sorts of overvaluations, well, notice that at least on a national index, the, the you know, the, that index is now higher than it was before. So that, again, absolutely. So we, I mean, you. You hear um, all of the media outlets talking about this frenzy at the height of the housing market and, you know, before the giant crash, how everything was overinflated and and you hear that all that talk. Where is everyone talking about it going straight back up to those values? I mean, it surpassed those values and you don't hear people, you know, talking about that. Do we need a crash to happen for them to actually recognise what's going on? Because it just seems that their, their head must be in the sand right now. Right, and it's, I mean, so to be fair... That, that index you're looking at doesn't adjust for general price inflation. So if you corrected for the fact that prices in general are higher now, it would be muted down somewhat, but still it's, it's not but that. That would be correct. like equivalent, right? Right, right. So, um, 
so there is that element. And also, too, just you know, sort of anecdotally, you know, it's you see newspaper reports and things like on CNBC saying how, you know, right after the housing crash, there was a period where the banks were really careful, you know, with their lending. Like they did, you know, they realized, wow, we were giving out mortgages we shouldn't have and lending standards were really tight. But then over time, they gradually relaxed. And especially as real estate prices started, you know, rising again, people got back into the old mentality. So, well, you know, also, are the um, quota systems that uh, Fannie and Freddie have, are they still there? Like, I know that they have to buy a certain number of, of um, uh, mortgages. And I know that, like, banks have a certain quota as well with, like, Community Reinvestment Act and, and all that sort of stuff. Like, if they want a, a good rating, then they have to follow these guidelines. Are, like, all of those policies still in play at the moment? I think they did make some changes right after the crash, and then I think they started like loosening them again. So I, I don't know definitively, like if the conditions of those things are exactly <laughs> the way they were, like as of 2004, I'm not sure, but, but definitely I know they were moving back in that direction. The right. Changes. They, they, they put the brakes on right after cause they realized, and then they started loosening up. So things are <laughs> for two seconds and then completely forgot why they were putting the brakes on like, Oh, what, what happened to all of that easy money? And then straight back over there. Um, so let's, uh, let's move on to the next chart there. And uh, we're coming up to like where we are right now. So bringing it up to the present, you look at, you talked about the interest rates that were pushed right down during Greenspan and that led to the inflating of the, the first housing bubble that was just disastrous and completely artificial uh, and ended up toppling down. And now, now you look at the interest rates that have been pushed down for a far longer period of time. Does this mean that if things crash, like after we started to raise interest rates now, um, I, I mean, if it crashes, is it going to be far worse than the last one in that case? Yes. Yeah, so unfortunately, I think so. And, you know, I, I don't relish saying that. And I realize there's a lot of people who like their shtick is to preach gloom and doom. And so I'm I'm not trying to, to fall into that category, but it is, I mean, that chart speaks for itself. And, like, and that's why I stressed early on the idea that some of us had predicted the housing crash in real time. So it wasn't just that housing crash and then ex post, we looked back and tried to come up with some story to blame it on the Fed, that we were right. warning about that before it happened. When other economists were like literally laughing in our faces kind of thing. So that's why, yeah. Th so the same framework that I used back in – mid 2007 to say, I think the worst recession in 25 years could be coming. That approach is what I'm showing here in this chart showing that first red circle was what made me say that back in 2007, that I was just looking. So you at looked at that, you saw the interest rates down, you knew that what would happen as a consequence of that, that we would have right. an artificially inflated market and we would have a giant awful recession as a, as a consequence of that. And then now this same single, I mean, you got to, uh, there was something that you mentioned at the, the conference as well. This is basically a pattern that has been used for the last, you know, hundred years to say like every single time without fail, when you do this, when you artificially lower it, it just uh, artificially inflates oh, yeah. bubbles. This is, this isn't just one thing that happened and we're using one data point to say, right. obviously it's going to happen again. This is something that has very, very convincingly and regularly and consistently predicted crashes in the past. And now, you know, it, you used it to predict the crash uh, here leading up to um, the financial crisis. You predicted that well before it happened. And then now we're just seeing what looks like this giant red flag that I think we should all be worried about. 
Yeah, exactly. And then because you can see again that that second oval there is much, you know, the the interest rates lower and it's been in place for a lot longer. So if you think artificially low interest rates foster male investments, you know, they give the wrong signal to entrepreneurs, then what they just what what happened under Bernanke primarily is going to be far worse than what uh, Greenspan fostered. Just to uh, elaborate, you you mentioned a minute ago the thing I, I was talking about at the conference about this indicator. It was. Mm -hmm. It was called an inverted yield curve. Yeah, and, so and we've got that coming up here. So okay. the yield curves are close to inverting okay, uh, at yeah. the moment. So yeah, walk us, walk us through what that means. Yeah, sure. So the yield curve, it just means it's, it's showing um, the, the maturities are, are plotted on the x-axis and then the yield is on the y-axis. And so a normal, in quotation marks, yield curve is upward sloping, meaning that as you as, like take treasuries, as you go from like, you know, uh, a three-month to a six month, to a one year, to a five year, to a 10 year, typically the annual rate of return you would earn on buying those government bonds would, would go up. That if you are willing to put, invest your money in a longer uh, bond, the annual rate of return you get would typically tend to be higher. So that would be an upward sloping yield curve. What happens is sometimes though the yield curve inverts, meaning the yield you get on shorter term bonds is higher than on longer term ones. And so in that chart, the way you, that jumps out at you is the, um, the the curve that's normally underneath all of a sudden can shoot up. And so I think what that is is two-year yields, and I think the other one's 10-year. And so that's just showing that normally the yield you get on a two-year government treasury is lower than the yield you would get on a 10-year, but that's not always true. And sometimes the, the short yields spike. And then you can see on that chart that when they do, when they overtake the 10-year yield, that's always followed shortly by with those gray bars, which are recessions. And so in the financial world, like investors, it's well, it's a well-known just pattern empirically that the yield curve inverting is a signal that, oh, gee, a recession's coming. And, and like I said, that's true at least since World War II, that you can see that pattern empirically. So my point is that for number one, the yield curve is close to inverting right now. So that's just like an independent you know, signal or, or line of evidence showing people that the economy, you know, is poised, I think, on the verge of a crash. But also the Austrian story that I'm telling you, the framework that I built at the beginning of this talk here, a natural offshoot of that or implication is this thing about the yield curve, because in the Austrian story, what's going on is during, quote, normal periods of prosperity, really, the Fed is inflating it's pumping in artificial credit that's making interest rates artificially low and that's building a false boom. But when the Fed pumps in money and when we say it pushes down the interest rate, really there's a bunch of interest rates and it's more the short-term rates that get pushed down. And then when the Fed slams on the brakes, it's short rates that, that spike more than long rates. So that Austrian story is consistent with this idea of the yield curve that when the Fed's inflating that short rates down. So it's an upward sloping yield curve. And that's the period of an unsustainable bubble. And then when the Fed gets nervous and slams on the brakes, short rates spike. And in fact, if it's a really hard slam on the brakes, the short rate shoots above the long rate. And then everyone says, oh, the yield curve inverted. And then there's a crash. So I'm, I'm just trying to give like more of the logic of what's causing it. Okay. I, I can't hear you right now. I don't know if 
Sorry, I um I had my mic mute muted so you couldn't hear the roadworks outside. Um, so that's exactly what we're he- seeing right here. You've got the uh, short term rate is the the red line at the bottom. Uh, apologies if it is blurry for anyone. Some of you seem to say it looks fine. Some of you it's blurry. So I'll um I'll put some of these graphs up uh, to make them available, and I'm sure that um that Bob you have them available in different places. So I'll make sure yeah. I link to your website as well so people can check them out. Um, but if you look here. Um, I mean, you've seen the, the the Fed start to hike rates recently, and then this has started to the short term rate has started to spike up. And look here, the blue line on top is the ten year uh, rate, and it does look like it's a, it's about to invert. That's a really troubling troubling signal. Right. Yeah. So again, I, it's not a uniquely Austrian thing to be worried about the yield curve. What I'm just trying to do is is just tell people. You know, this is a standard metric, and you can see, like, lots of people on CNBC or whatever are worrying about. Oh, gee, if the Fed continues to tighten, is the yield curve going to invert? And so I'm, I'm tying that, you know, sort of empirical measurement with the the broader story and the Austrian view of why is that pattern? Why does that matter so much? Why is it that an inverting yield curve tends to go hand in hand with a crash? And you have people in the chat also saying that this, uh, the yield curve inversion is one of the most famous crash indicators. Like this is a really reliable uh, indicator that has been used often in the past. So um, if anyone is saying that there isn't a crash coming, coming, that everything is looking great, I mean, I, I think that their head's in the sand as well because you look at all the data, it just suggests that thing and things are not healthy in the economy right now. Right, and I guess just to be... Clear, technically, the yield curve is not yet fully inverted. It's just getting mm-hmm. really close to it. So, and so sort of, there is yeah. a possibility you're saying that perhaps the uh, the rates will diverge again, and uh, ten years will end up a lot higher than than uh, short term interest rates, and maybe we won't get there. Is that a possibility? So, I, yeah, I guess what I would say is, if the Fed all of a sudden announced, you know what, we're going to have a QE four, and they, that would push down it that might postpone when the crash happens. So in my view, the crash would still come. It would just be that much more intense. I see. So they're just pushing the can down the road um, and this is going to happen no matter what. It's just a matter of waiting to find out when. Right. So, yeah, that's that's my view. Um, But, yeah, especially if the the Fed continues to tighten, then I think, you know, you're going to see the yield curve inversion. You're going to have that normal pattern manifest itself. Mm-hmm. And then someone else in the comments also uh, posted that the Fed controls the short uh, end and markets control the long end. So one reading that inversion is like the state and market fighting. Would you say that that's um, a good representation of, of what's going on there? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a decent way to, of putting it because, yes, so what happens is uh, if the Fed tightens, like let's say it sells off assets and it sucks reserves out of the system, that primarily makes short-term rates rise because – you know, the shortest term rates are just the, the loans of banks make to each other of the reserves. Whereas the long term rate, it's not merely like the scarcity of the thing being lent, but it's also building in like expectations of price inflation. So if mm-hmm. the Fed, if the Fed tightens, that might cause scarcity in the short term and make the short term rates rise, but it might reduce your expectation of long term price inflation because now the Fed's absorbing some of that money. So long rates might actually even go down a little bit if the Fed tightens now. And so, yes, that's why you do see the opposite movements. And so from what I'm gathering from what you've you've said about the history of this and previous bubbles, it seems like there have been some things that happened in the market and rather than just letting them play out, the government has intervened and basically just like pumped uh, more fuel into that so that it, it, 
I mean, it, it seems like we're just kicking the can down the road, and maybe we should have just let the first uh, first dip in the in the um, in the market play out. And instead, you're just adding fuel to the fire, and then soon it's just going to explode. Like it's it's just you know artificial bubble after artificial bubble, and it's going to come a time where this is going to be far worse than it would have been if the government just hadn't got involved in the first place. Would you say that that's correct? Right. Yeah. So the, the basic Austrian story is, look, look, it's precisely the way the Fed and the government sort of, you know, combat or treat a recession that just sets us up for the next crash. So that's why this cycle keeps happening. Mm-hmm. The only way to ultimately get rid of the boom bust cycle is just the next time there's a crash, just tough it out and just let prices adjust and let, you know, the, by having by flooding the markets with liquidity, you're not doing any favors. You're just setting us up for the next crash. But I mean, the people, the pushback from uh, people who don't like this model uh, of non-intervention would be, you know, how can we, if there's a big crash, how do we just let people suffer? Like, don't we need to inject liquidity? Otherwise, bad things will happen. Like, do they have a point when they say that there should be some interference? Well, it's, they're right that bad things will happen if we just sit back and, quote, do nothing. But bad things are going to happen anyway. So, like, I would say back in, like, 2000, 2001, 2002, when Krugman was saying we need to inflate the housing bubble to offset the dot-com crash, people could have correctly, you know, if, if people pushed against him, he could have correctly said, because right now there's going to be pain. If we don't have a housing bubble, this is bad. You know how much wealth was wiped out with a dot? But that would be nothing. The things people were worried about in 2002 and 2003 were nothing compared to 2008. And likewise, as bad as things were in 2008, like what would have happened if the, if the government and Fed did nothing? You'd have had major investment banks go down. Yeah. But I think with the next crisis that hits because of what Bernanke did with all the QE and everything, and of course, you know, the Bank of Japan and ECB did similar things, I think you're going to see governments go down. You know, not, not the U.S., but um, like, you know, Maybe Spain the U.S. I mean, goodness. Well, I think that might be like the next one. I think the... <laughs> the one after. Oh, right. my gosh. So, I mean, you've already started to see governments go down. You've seen a lot of places declare bankruptcy. You've seen states in the United States declare bankruptcy. you We've got um, places, towns around California that have uh, declared bankruptcy already. Um, it's you know Detroit has declared bankruptcy. Um, it's it, it doesn't it doesn't look too good uh, for us. And so I'm just wondering, like, what are what are people's options? What can people be doing to prepare themselves? Is there anything that they could be doing to prepare themselves? Like, you know, is this a matter of of debating policy and saying federal reserve you stop that or is it a matter of safeguarding um putting your money into into assets that are um have a better store are a better store of value so you don't lose everything like what i mean what can people be doing right now yeah so i'll i'll, I'll answer you specifically but i would in general i would point people um to my website it's at lara-murphy.com l-a-r-a-murphy.com mm-hmm where I have a whole video and we go through all this stuff and give options. But yeah, the, the quick thing And you is- give like wonderful, I, everyone should definitely check that out. So I'll add that to my, um, okay. my links as well, just because there's such a, a wealth of information there. Um, you should, it's a great resource for everyone. But yeah, so I, I think what people need to do is just pl- be played defensively. So here I'm not like giving a whole strategy in terms of your portfolio slide, but I'm saying just to make sure you don't get wiped out. And so I think, yeah, people should have at least, you know, Americans, should have access to dollars and um, inflation hedges. And so that could be in the form of gold and you know, cryptocurrencies for obviously your type of listeners who are comfortable with that. Whereas if, I, if I'm talking to some people that are like older, they might not really get. Cryptocurrency. I could just say like, you know, have cash and gold. But yeah, for people who are savvy with 
you know, cryptocurrencies, I would say that that could also fulfill that role. The, the idea being that in this, because it, it might play out in, in parts, like we said, like I could imagine Europe crashing first, in which case the dollar would strengthen as everybody runs the treasury. But then like, you know, we're saying it's not as if the U.S. economy is built on a healthy foundation either. And so, but I could imagine like at first there's a period where the dollar strengthens a lot because that's what happened in 08. And then, you know, but down the road, maybe then the dollar crashes also. So the, to me, the, the safe thing is to have a good source of dollar denominated assets. Um, in, in the link I gave, we talk about how you can actually do it with life insurance, but just you know, having bonds, things that are denominated in dollars, but then also having gold, silver and or cryptocurrencies in case the dollar crashes because you want to so have something. I have, a, I have a question about yeah. the, like the way that the, the direction the economy is heading in now that we do have cryptocurrency. So before we're, I mean, we're fa- forced to use the US dollar for a lot of things uh, and that sort of props it up. And you also, I mean, US is a, is the reserve currency of the world, but recently you've had a lot of current cu- current countries like Germany, for example, saying, actually, we don't want to use the US dollar. So it is um, its stronghold on the global economy is starting to weaken. And now that cryptocurrencies come along, people have choices. People have alternative currencies that they could be using peer-to-peer with no interference at all, which I think is a, is a game changer. And I wonder what effect that is going to have on any upcoming housing crisis or um, market crash or um, uh, whatever doom is, is coming our way, because I I wonder that if if most of the of what's happening in the economy is happening in, in US dollars, then what the Federal Reserve does has a huge impact on everyone's lives, on their businesses and on their savings. But if more and more people start to be using cryptocurrency, which in its essence cannot be manipulated, has a you know, a predetermined inflation schedule, can't be arbitrarily changed by some Fed chairman that was wasn't even uh, voted in. Um, so I just wonder whether we're gonna start to see the effects, um, the disastrous effects that the Federal Reserve can have on the economy start to weaken now that cryptocurrency has become a reality and is more pervasive. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. Um, the example I use is like the Zimbabwe hyperinflation didn't really affect a lot of people because not many of us you know, were conducting transactions using the Zimbabwean currency, where it's awful for those people, but it was relatively isolated. Whereas, yeah, if the Federal Reserve were to inflate to the same degree they did, that would be disastrous because so many people right now are using the dollar. So, yeah, I think ultimately the way people are going to protect themselves from what these central banks are doing is to diversify and to get into other um, forms of, of money, and be, be that cryptocurrency or more people trying to use um, you know, gold and silver or even some – I think maybe there's a problem of them doing it without wanting to crash the dollar. But like, I don't understand why the Chinese government or others don't just issue their own like gold back currency or something. And I think, you know, they've flirted with that, you know, and so maybe there's political factors behind the scenes, but you might see something like that too down the road. So, so yes, to answer your question, by any objective metric, the U S dollar is losing its prestige as the world's reserve currency. Like the number of transactions that it's, you know, it's used for is, is diminishing and so in the long run, that's actually a good thing, but it also means in the short term for people who are using the dollar, if there's a sudden shift and a lot of people get out of it, then the remainder, you know, you'll see prices quoted in dollars shoot up pretty fast. Right. And I do hope that um, we start to take power out of 
the hands of the Federal Reserve more and more just by not using a currency that's controlled by them. That's, I mean, that's exactly why cryptocurrency was created, right? When it was first created in the Genesis block, Satoshi Nakamoto wrote, um, Chancellor on the brink of second bailout for banks. This was a political currency, uh-huh. whether we like it or not. This was basically saying we have central banks, we don't want them to control the money supply anymore, here's an alternative. And that was used as like a timestamp to uh, show when the Genesis block was mined. And so I think that um, I think that we're in a better like although the graphs that you've shown and I'll I'll I'll, um, I'll put that back on the screen in a second. I mean, it does seem like we have a disastrous crash coming up, and we should all be very very careful. Um, but looking even like further forward into the future, things do seem brighter now that we have alternatives, and perhaps we are able to take control of the money supply back. Right, and I think also too that that's just a it's a it's a it's a uh, I don't know, it's, it's a less st- stressful approach. Like in other words, rather than trying to agitate and get political action to go and like you know go to Washington and and, and the Federal Reserve, which you know academically I think that's that's the long run. That's what's got to happen. And you know I'll certainly write about that stuff in my in my writings. But in terms of like you as an individual person right now, you know you know that that's going to take a while. So just yeah, things you can do right now. Just go ahead and you get yourself, you know, out of the crosshairs of that system by diversifying and getting a bunch of assets that are not correlated with the dollar, um, you know, like gold, crypto and so forth so that you can sort of secede from that whole framework. Yeah. And I mean, you look at the history, look at what happened in 2008, where, I mean, lots of people were calling even before that for the Fed to be audited, for HUD to be audited, for Fannie and Freddie to be audited. You had people like... um, what's his name Barney Frank who was like basically fighting this audit process you have well-connected politicians who have had these privileged positions and are benefiting from this uh privileged positions in connection to the uh the Federal Reserve um and these uh you know semi-autonomous semi-private awful government institutions and um and they just don't want people looking into this they want opaque systems that they can benefit from that's what our entire political structure is based on on people feeding into this like enjoying the benefits reaping the benefits of this opaque structure and then the masses sort of um, bearing the blunt, the um, reaping the consequences of that. And so um, I, you talk about ending the Fed and all of this talk, like I know Ron Paul, his big campaign, like end the Fed. And this sounds like this great noble idea, but we've been trying to even audit the Fed for such a long time mm-hmm. and politicians with a lot of power cons- consistently just fight against it. I, I see no chance that the Fed will be uh, audited. I think eventually it'll lose power, but it's going to lose power not by people saying, let's end you, let's audit you, but by people using other means and taking control of the money outside of their hands. Yeah, what, what I sometimes people would ask me, do I think that, you know, uh, Rand Paul's efforts to audit the Fed are, are going to go through? And my answer is always they would go through if, if they could get a version where the audit would give them a clean bill of health. Right. In other words, like, so I don't know exactly what's going on behind the scenes or whatever, but, but yes, they, they would allow it if then the audit would happen and they'd say, see, we told you guys everything's above board. <laughs> Everything's you know, fine, guys. Yeah, yeah right. Um, and, and so that's, you know, I think that's what they would do. Uh, and, and you're right. So, again, it's in my work, I am, you know, going to keep telling the public that, yeah, why do we need a central bank? We, you know, we don't free market economists wouldn't tell you you need a central board setting oil prices. Why in the world do we need a board of 
federal open market commission, you know, committee people telling us what interest rates ought to be. That's crazy. That's central planning. So yes, I'll keep doing, but yeah, in terms of here and now, what do people do for this crash that, you know, maybe here in the next 18 months, it's certainly, I think, you, you know, you gotta take the world as it is and go do it. An analogy would be something like rather than lobbying at the state or city level to get rid of taxi cab licenses, just, you know, Uber and Lyft. You know, <laughs> right, that, just that's coming overnight to, to and, yeah. yeah, circumvent the system and it can't be shut down. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, it is hard to know what the, what the uh, way forward is and it's, it's difficult, but I do like that we have a lot of choices now. Yeah, and, and also just to continue with that analogy, I think that's what's great about Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies is you don't have to go read a book on monetary theory. People can just start using it and their friends are using it. Like, what is that? And, you, and so it's, it's a lot, of, just like with Uber and Lyft, it's a lot easier to explain someone that the taxi cab lobby isn't really about consumer safety it's about, you know, them being able to charge higher fares. What? It's not about yeah. consumer safety? Well, I, you, I never predicted that. Glad you were sitting down for that one. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> right. So anybody who's ridden in Uber or Lyft and then taken a cab ride knows what's going on. They know that, yeah, it's not that the cabbies are out there to protect the quality of our ride or, you know. They know it's all about their their cartel or their I, lo I love getting into my Uber and then giving me a choice of candy and a bottle of water and right. a lovely seat that doesn't smell like someone's vomited on it many, <laughs> many times. It's actually quite pleasant traveling on four wheels that way rather than having to take the MTA. Before that with taxi cabs, it was not. Um, like, so... If we're talking about, I mean, in this talk here, we've talked, we've shown a lot of graphs, we've had a lot of technical jargon. There's a very small section of the population that's going to watch it and be like, oh, you know, this is an interesting mm -hmm. point and I'm going to get riled up by the fact that those two lines crossed, mm -hmm. you know. Um, people just... People just don't understand this stuff. And what's more, people don't even know what the Federal Reserve is. If you say, and the Fed, are they like, oh, the, the Feds, as in like the government people? Right. Like, what is the Fed? I mean, I, I remember when I didn't know what the Fed was. It wasn't that long ago, you know? Um, and there are just so many people out there who don't understand that one of the most powerful institutions in the world, not just in America, but in the world, is just a closed, opaque system with a group of people who aren't even elected by the population. Not that that would necessarily be better, uh, but we, they, they've no idea. They've never even heard of it. They don't know what's going on. And yet these interest rates, as you've talked about in this entire presentation, are just so important to understanding what's going on in the economy. But just no one knows anything about it. So, like, I mean, I, I wonder if, if what you say before is the right way to go, like rather than trying to educate people and be like, hey, guys, this is why interest rates are important, because mm. I, don't, I don't know that that's uh, going to be that interesting. Um, instead, just to show them, hey, there's this alternative currency. It's cool. You know, give them other reasons to want to use this alternative currency. Don't try and force it onto them because, you know, the Fed is bad or whatever. Just say, oh, well, there are these other use cases. It's great for international transfers. It's great mm. for online transfers. Um, and I just wonder whether that's the only way we're going to combat this system because it is super complicated and that works to the politicians' advantage. Because the population don't understand what's going on, you do not see people, you know, marching through the streets every day and, and fighting <laughs> for right. this to be overhauled. They just don't even know about it. Yeah, I think you're right. And that, that also is the philosophy too. Like I say, if I point people to that laramurphy.com site where – we're showing people how you can also use life insurance policies to do some of these things to get your finances in a different sector. It's the same approach we have there too, that it's, 
it has to make sense at an individual level. So like, again, if you were trying to get rid of the taxi cab lobby's power, it's not that people out of a sense of duty would be taking Uber. It's they would just see this is so much more convenient. It's cheaper. It's I can see where the car is. If it's coming to pick me up, you know, and it's, it's, it's an offshoot. It would then end, you know, the, the power of the taxi cab lobby. So I think it's a similar thing here that, yeah, in the, the way that you're going to get millions of people to change what they're doing is not by lecturing them and wagging your finger and they're going to do it out of duty. It's just you're going to give them something that's really easy to use. And then they're going to go ahead and start implementing that and tell their friends just because, hey, this gave me benefits right away. And then just as an offshoot, you know, it might have this broader social purpose. So right. it's still important for like, the, you know, the geeky among us to talk about the theory so people understand the big picture. But yeah. And show of, the graphs because we right. love graphs on this show. <laughs> uh, but OK, so if we're looking to the future, you talked about having different types of currency to hedge your bets. As we've seen, like a lot of these markets can be correlated in a lot of ways. I think um, cryptocurrency, I mean, if you're thinking that you could safeguard all of your wealth just by putting it into cryptocurrency, you should probably rethink that because it is probably going to be correlated with the U.S. markets as well. If you see the U.S. economy collapse or you see um, this next housing bubble uh, completely collapse, you're probably going to see Bitcoin be affected as well as people lose their, their fiat wealth. They're probably have less money to put into cryptocurrency. So there is going to be a correlation. But I would still argue that despite uh, Bitcoin probably taking a, an initial hit and other cryptocurrencies taking an initial hit, you will probably see them bounce back stronger uh, sooner or later because they're a more reliable system where people have more control over their own finances. Right. And that's why I just to, again, emphasize, I was before I was just saying like what, what you could do with a chunk of your portfolio in terms of just playing defense so, yeah, I'm not giving broad investment advice. I'm just saying, like, the way to make sure you don't get wiped out. And that's why, yeah, you want to have some, if you're in the U.S., dollar-denominated assets in case there's a crash and there's a flight to the dollar. But then you also want to have gold and or crypto in case the dollar crashes. Because I would. So, yes, a general crash like the stock market and real estate crashes, I'm not sure what Bitcoin would do. But I think if the dollar crashed, then I think Bitcoin would go up because people would say, where do we go now? And, and just like just like gold and silver would go up in that kind of environment. Absolutely. And we've seen crazy movement in the Bitcoin market today. I know that people in the chat are like, there's, there are wrecked people everywhere right now because we had a huge plummet in prices today. Um, but I, I mean, that's due to, to other factors as well. But um, regardless of the volatility of, of Bitcoin, uh, you're seeing more and more people entering the ecosystem. And as more people enter, you see it start to stabilize. You do see um, more liquidity there. And I do think that you're right. People are going to see Bitcoin as a place where they, they can be putting their money. Um, and it, I, mean, I, I think it's going to be the currency of the future, the preferable currency, because if I had a choice between a paper note of a, a government that has a track record of hyperinflating the money, of, of inflating away my savings every single year, of giving these tarp bailouts, uh, creating money out of thin air that again deflates the value of, of my, I, my money, I mean, I'm going to choose the, the option that isn't controlled by, um, by fickle people. So um, I, the future, future looks bright. Uh, for me, even though I do think people should be worried, I think they should be prepping for what is an inevitable crash coming. And um, and at the same time, I'm very grateful to whoever Satoshi Nakamoto was uh, for creating this wonderful thing that that we now has a has an, have as an alternative currency. Yeah, I agree with all that. And I and again, in terms of just giving something that's you know for, for people, I think because that's part of the appeal. Again, going back to this analogy with Uber. Part of it is that it's on your phone or whatever. It was a different technology 
to help do a conventional old thing. So I think likewise with crypto, there is that element of it that the way you're going to get a bunch of new people to look at it is because it's kind of cool. But again, it can't be that difficult. It's got to be something that's really right. easy to use. And uh, so just uh, so Ventian in the in the chat is saying that I ignored his super chat before. To lies, Ventian, lies. I would never do that. If I did, I apologize. Show me the the video, but um, but I, I don't remember that. Just wanted to interject there. Um, and I do just have one more point about this impending crash. So I mean, we saw in two thousand eight, we saw people taking to the streets, we saw people burning cars, we saw a lot of hurt in America. People lost a lot of money. Um, it was really heartbreaking to see that. And you saw riots happening as a consequence to it. You see, like, even now people are in the streets rioting. Um, and, like, what's the unemployment rate at the moment in America? It's 3% and change. So 3% and change and people are rioting in the streets. And you made a really great point uh, before, not in this chat, but uh, heard you earlier, about, like, what's going to happen when this next crash comes? Uh, and it's 13% unemployment, you know? If we're at 3% mm -hmm. and people are already in the street vandalizing, uh, we have, you know, m mobs, like, breaking down cars and, and running into people. And, pe like, people are angry right now. People don't like the right. state of things. So what's going to happen when it's 13 percent unemployment i mean it is a little scary to think about right and another difference too is how much debt that the u.s government has piled up since even 2008 so it's not merely it's not merely that that i think that the economic crash is going to be harder this time around than it was back then but that the starting position we're in a much you know more vulnerable position the u.s government you know if interest rates spike for example the u.s government is carrying a lot more debt now than it was even 10 years ago. And so I think that that's an element too, that the, the conventional responses to how you pacify an angry population and you sort of, you know, give out unemployment benefits and food stamps and stuff like that. The U S government is going to be in a much less tenable position just because of the trillions of dollars of debt they've piled up in the last decade. So there's that element as well. Yeah. Um, so some people are wondering like whether the unemployment is really, uh, 3% at the moment. So I just uh, just looked that up. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's around there. It's like 3 4% at the moment. So we're looking, I'm just going to bring this chart up one more time so, uh, so you all can see that. Um, so right here, this here is the amount of time that interest rates were deflated that led uh, then when they started being hiked again, led to a disastrous bubble that crippled a lot of families and crippled the economy. Uh, we had a giant crash and then they deflated interest rates here and kept them at that rate for this long. I mean, it's it's far longer. And then you see here, they've just started to hike them again. So I, if, if we're at 4% unemployment now, 3% unemployment now, if that spikes and goes up to 13%, maybe even higher, we don't know what's going to happen when this crash happens. Mm. I mean, it's, it's going to be a scary time. So just make sure that you, if you're out there, just just take care of yourself. Make sure you're prepared. Have whatever safeguards you can. If you can get access to other jurisdictions other than the United States, it might be helpful if you have a double passport. You know, just start. Um, it's not. I mean, those options aren't available to everyone. There, they're expensive. They're hard to come by. Uh, if you do have them, take advantage of them. Make sure you have everything set up. Uh, if you can get hold of them, make sure you make preparations in advance. Uh, look at your um, portfolio allocation. Make sure that you are hedging yourself. That you're not in a bunch of 
and markets that are all correlated if you can help it. Sometimes you just can't help it and maybe all the markets will be correlated and we're screwed no matter yeah. what. So make sure you have lots of cigarettes and chocolate in that case because maybe that'll be the currency of the apocalypse. But, Do we have time um, for me to, I, I think maybe what, that, what your commenter meant was, so yeah, the official unemployment right now is 3.7%, but a lot of people are saying that's misleading because a lot of people dropped out of the labor force. And so that, so that, that is certainly true that the, the fact that the unemployment rate right now is 3.7% doesn't mean what that number would have meant like in 1995. So it is true that the U S labor markets, I think are still screwed up now, partly because of all the stuff that's happened in the last 10 years. Right. Right. So that's a really good clarification uh, to have. So I think that's all the time that we have right now, but I really, really appreciate you coming on to chat with me. Can you just give your website one more time if people want to go and uh, check out, find more resources? Yeah. So to, for all this stuff, yeah, go to, it's lauramurphy.com, L-A-R-A-Murphy.com. Murphy.com. And that's uh, no E, just Murphy with a Y. Correct. Awesome. So I just posted that uh, in the chat and I'll post that in the link as well. But thank you so much, Bob, for chatting with me. I really appreciate your time. I just, for those of you who don't know, so uh, Bob Murphy, actually, he runs the Contra Cruise that I just came back from. You guys would have seen my videos. I've interviewed Sasha uh, Hodder there. Um, we, I, I posted a couple of quiz shows, which were awesome from there. So this is uh, half of the genius behind that amazing cruise. And you guys should definitely, <laughs> definitely try and plan on, on coming to that cruise. Maybe, maybe if it all happens uh bob then we can all like a bunch of us who like crypto and freedom can just hop on a boat and maybe just travel around the world for a few years okay wait a second so ventian has just given a super chat oh wow thank you so much i really really wow another one uh so i i'm gonna read his chats just so that you could respond to these because i do not ignore super chats and i really 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 appreciate them uh so but days like this is why i dollar cost average i buy the same amount uh every payday so i buy low also this is why i move my btc bank box i panic sold during the btc war i regret it the BCC war. <laughs> that's going to go down the history, is the BCC war. Um, so that's a great point as well, Bob. What do you say about uh, dollar cost averaging? I mean, it's th that's fine, I suppose. But I guess it depends what is he dollar cost averaging in. So if it's just like a, a bunch of stocks, I think like the stock market in general is going to crash. So if he's saying, no, I'm going to keep my job and I can live off that and I'm fine, and then I'll you know be able to buy a bunch of stocks at rock bottom prices you know, more, more power to it. I'm just saying though, a lot of people, like, especially if they're older, like their retirement was going to be tied up in their current portfolio. And if it yeah. drops 40%, that's going to be a big deal. Or people who just bought a house and then if it plummets and they're underwater, that could be a big deal. So yeah. So for some people, it might be great, especially, like I said, if you're, if you, if you're liquid, you could come in and then pick and choose and get really good bargains. But some people are not seeing this coming and it's going to be devastating. Yeah. And I mean, if you have parents who are, have their portfolio, like can people be trying to safeguard uh, their parents' assets in some way? Like how can they protect? I mean, I, again, it depends on, you know, your relationship. And all, but, right, but yeah, right. I, I would, yeah, like if, if somebody just has a, you know, a broad-based exposure to U.S. stocks right now, and especially if it's an older person, you could, you know, maybe say, maybe think about getting into something more conservative, you know, so it, there's all kinds of margins of doing it. But yeah, the difference between being in, fixed income versus equities could be a big deal over the next year as well. Just, just a, yeah. minor, a minor tweak like that if they're in a 401k environment. Yeah.
for sure. Um, so once again, I, I kind of wrap things up before, so I won't do it all again, but huge thank you. Um, huge thank you to everyone for being here in the chat. A huge, huge, huge thank you uh, to Ventian for the super chat. I really, really appreciate it. it. It helps keep my entire channel running. So thank you very, very much. Um, and I'll see you guys all in the Telegram group. Uh, if you're not in the Telegram group, I'll post a link in the super chat in one second after we got off the live chat, but come hang out there. I'll also post a bunch of links in the, in the Telegram group as well so you can check those out and link to, to Bob's sites and all of his incredible resources. One of the smartest people I know. I'm really appreciative of your time and also hilarious. Uh, if anyone doesn't follow Bob Murphy on Twitter, you need to, you need to follow this man uh, immediately because his Twitter and Facebook accounts are, are two of my favorite uh, sites on social media. So uh, check this guy out if, if you haven't already. Uh, but thank you all so much for being here. I really appreciate it and go and, and enjoy your, your Wednesday. Um, and that is all from me. So Bye. Thanks, Naomi. For extra material and any links mentioned in this podcast, please visit naomibrockwell.com. If you'd like to watch the video version, please visit Naomi Brockwell TV on YouTube, BitChute or DTube. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Bitcoin, Blockchain and the Technologies of Our Future.